Welcome to this ATS Pulmonary Rehabilitation Assembly podcast. My name is Dr Anne-Marie Lee and I'm a lecturer at La Trobe University in Melbourne. I have here with me um, uh, Professor Jenny Allison. Jenny is a professor in physiotherapy at the University of Sydney and is also a conjoint uh, professor of allied health between the University of Sydney and the Sydney local health district. I also have with me Dr Zoe McHugh, who is a senior lecturer in physiotherapy at the University of Sydney. So I'm greatly appreciative that you're both able to join me today and uh, give your insights and your valuable contributions uh, to the focus of this podcast. So as we know, pulmonary rehabilitation is a crucial part of management for patients with chronic lung disease. And in recent years, different models of pulmonary rehabilitation have evolved certainly to help maximise the provision of this type of treatment to a large number of patients. And one model that is considered is minimal equipment programs. And this will be the focus of the podcast today. So Jenny, I'll start off uh, with the first question for you. Just to start us off and to set the scene, um, I wonder if you can elaborate on what's meant by the minimal equipment programs as compared to a perhaps traditional uh, pulmonary rehabilitation model and why that might be of importance to discuss it. Yeah, hi, thanks Anne-Marie. Um, well, from as far as um, we think about minimal equipment programs, um, we think of them as programs that um, don't use treadmills, cyclogometers, weight machines, rowing machines, and other high-resource equipment that's typical in gymnasiums. And I think that this is an important area to focus on because in many parts of the world, it's not always possible to provide pulmonary rehabilitation in gymnasiums that are well-resourced with that sort of equipment. Um, and COPD populations um, may live in rural and remote areas or in countries where well-equipped gymnasiums are not widely available. And I suppose the important thing is that we know that there are significant benefits from pulmonary rehabilitation, but because um, there is limited availability of programs, one way perhaps to make programs more widely available is to see if programs that um, only use minimal equipment can also be effective as pulmonary rehab programs. That's great. Thank you, Jenny. Um, so I guess if we first consider the, the issue around equipment, um, because we do endurance training um, as, a, as a key part of a, a rehab program, um, it's certainly in terms of achieving effective outcomes. What might be the options for prescribing and uh, undertaking endurance training uh, when you're in the situation of having minimal equipment? And I wonder if we can talk about um, lower limb um, training and then upper limb training. Yeah, so I might talk about the lower limb training, it's Jenny here, and then Zoe might give a little bit on the upper limb training. Um, we, we all know that if we want to achieve a training effect um, with the exercise component of pulmonary rehab, uh, we need to consider exercise intensity, duration, frequency, and the length of the program. But really the most difficult part of exercise prescription is intensity. And if we consider that endurance training using minimal equipment um, could be things like walking training. We do have some pretty good low technology tests that are well established like the six minute walk test and the incremental shuttle walk test that uh, can be used for exercise 
prescription to ensure that when we provide programs this way that they are of an adequate intensity that would achieve a training effect. So just, um, we, our group's done a number of studies in this area and uh, shown that if um, somebody walks, uh, somebody with COPD walks um, at a speed of about 80% of their average six-minute walk test speed, when we measure the oxygen consumption during uh, walking at that speed, the oxygen consumption's around about 77% of their peak oxygen consumption. And similarly, when somebody with COPD or a group with COPD walk at an intensity of around about 70% of the, incremental the peak incremental shuttle walk test speed that they achieved on that test, then again their oxygen consumption is around about the same, around about 76 or 77% of, um, of their peak VO2. And we do know from the um, exercise literature that these levels of um, exercising at that percentage of VO2 peak are within the training intensity shown to achieve the physiological training effects that we're trying to achieve with our patients in pulmonary rehab. So that's one good easy way and uh, the way we can use um, specific tests and assessments for specific exercise prescription for individuals. Um, Later on, uh, we're going to talk a bit more about Tai Chi as a low-resource method of training, but we also have done some work in that area and shown that if we look at the intensity of Tai Chi, for example, um, of, of patients with COPD when they're performing Tai Chi, that this again um, is, achieves an intensity of around about 64% of peak VO2, and again, that would be falling in the um, training intensity range that would achieve some physiological changes. So... Um, using those tests is good. Um, the other, the, the walk test, the other angle on this is um, to use symptoms as a guide to intensity. And um, we've often heard in that, you know, if you've got to exercise at around about three to five on the Borg um, RPE or Disney score, uh, that's the Borg score, the zero to 10 category ratio scale. And um, we've done a little bit of work in this area as well, and others have too, but um, we've shown that if you exercise, if people with COPD exercise um, at a score of around about three uh, on that scale, then the VO2 that they're achieving is around about, again, 78% of their peak VO2. Now, that work was done on a cyclogometer, and I'll give you that that's not low, low equipment, um, minimal equipment, but it's, it gives some indication that when, when patients are scoring around about three to four on that, scales, on that scale, the RPE or the Disney scale, whichever is the highest, they may well be um, working at that intensity that we, we want to achieve with our training. And uh, we often use intensity um, of... Disney or RP, once a program started, we often use that as the way to progress the exercise. So if somebody's not scoring um, reasonably highly once you know they've been exercise training for a week or two, we want to progress the exercise. Um, and it's a little bit harder with um, minimal equipment programs because with something like a treadmill, we can increase the slope of the treadmill to increase the exercise intensity, or with a cycle ergometer, you can increase the watts that the person's uh, exercising at. Um, but I think with, with minimal equipment programs, especially a walking program, 
if, for example, somebody is, ex- is walking and they're not achieving an RPE or a Disney score that's in that range that we think should, be, um, should guide our intensity, uh, we can be a bit creative and maybe they're limited, they can't walk faster because they can't increase their stride length. But we could um, make the work harder for them by doing things like adding weight belts so that they are working a little bit harder for their training. So there's some of the sort of ways to prescribe intensity and to manage the progression of intensity with minimal equipment programs. I think Zoe is going to talk a little bit about upper limb. Yeah, so so Jenny's tended to focus on um, how we can deliver lower limb endurance training by mainly speaking about walking exercise. And I just wanted to add that there are also options for endurance training um, when we consider the upper limbs as part of a minimal equipment program. And one way we can do that is to use light hand weights and provide more of an unsupported endurance arm training uh, mode for people to exercise at. Uh, Look, in some places there may not be conventional light hand weights available and in those situations we'd suggest that one um, becomes creative and, and, and things like water bottles or water bottles filled with sand can always act as sort of surrogate um, hand weights um, if, if it really is a very low resource program. Obviously the other type of endurance arm training we talk about in a conventional program is uh, supported arm training and typically in a conventional program we would do this with an arm cranking machine. Obviously that wouldn't fall under the category of being a minimal equipment program. Um, so, so that type of arm training um, wouldn't be possible. But the other way we can provide un- form of um, sort of endurance arm training is to also use therabands or elastic bands, which typically we might think of um, as more strength training modalities, but um, there are ways through providing a more high repetition uh, type of activity that these types of devices could also be used to provide more unsupported arm training. There's a number of different uh, opportunities really in terms of uh, using, if you have that situation of uh, minimal equipment and um, still being able to carry out your your endurance training for the lower limb and upper limb, which is uh, really encouraging. Um, I guess one one uh, issue may, that may come up as a question is um, uh, concerns around the, the outcome of this approach um, to sort of exercise prescription and I wonder if you could comment on uh, the outcomes of programs that um, that have used minimal equipment for, for lower limb training and um, what, what's been found from an exercise tolerance and a quality of life perspective. Yeah, thanks, Anne-Marie. That's a really good question because obviously we can talk about minimal equipment, but what do they achieve? Look, um, we've had a look at the literature and currently there are around about seven randomised control trials that have least, at least compared walking training uh, in, as a, in pulmonary rehab as, as compared to usual care. And um, these uh, RCTs have either used exercise prescription of 80% of the six-minute walk test speed as the intensity or 70% of the incremental shuttle walk test um, speed or use symptoms of um, dyspnea or RP of around about three to five. And why I've sort of chosen these seven um, RCTs is because they also were the way we would deliver pulmonary rehab. They were supervised programs and they... The participants exercised for a reasonable duration between 20 and 60 minutes. 
and they uh, were at a frequency of two to three times a week for approximately seven to 12 weeks. So we would think that these programs were pretty representative of what we currently believe is, is reasonable for pulmonary rehab. And on looking at a, a, a bit of a meta-analysis on these programs, uh, they showed a significant um, improvement in six-minute walk test distance of around about 72 metres compared to uh, usual care. Um, and we know that that's well above the MID for the six-minute walk test of 30 metres. So some, some, some nice results in terms of improving functional exercise capacity. And um, four of those studies um, also used the St George Respiratory Questionnaire as an outcome of, for health-related quality of life. And um, they sh though the, the analysis of that showed a very uh, significant improvement in, in health-related quality of life of minus 13 points around about. And we know that the um, minimal important difference of the St George Respiratory Questionnaire is minus four points. A, a, a lower score is better. That's why I'm saying minus. Um, participant numbers overall in those studies was around about two to three hundred people, so not huge numbers, but there's starting to be growing evidence that these programs of minimal um, equipment um, uh, are effective. Um, uh, we're currently um, actually doing a Cochrane review in um, minimal equipment programs uh, so that soon in the future hopefully we'll be able to uh, really evaluate all the literature that's there and give some better guidance around this um, so we'll, we'll get a better idea um, in the future of how... Hello? Hello, Marie. Oh, hi, Anne-Marie. Yeah, we're in. You're in. What do you think? Well, should we try it and see? It didn't ask me for, to be a moderator or anything. Um, but just based on the fact that it says on the instructions that you could ring into that number and record an introduction and conclusion may suggest that... I'd say it's all just it suggests that it, sh it shouldn't need someone separate or a separate recording to happen, so... Do you want to give separate, it a go? You know, a separate step. We'll give it a go, maybe. Joey's going to ask answer the next couple of questions, so that could work okay. Okay. And if we need to re-record some parts of it, we've got bits of notes of what we're saying, so we could always do something similar. Absolutely. Okay, I'll try and um, make it hopefully not too much background noise, and I can still mute myself anyway. Um, okay, so thank you for that um, that perspective on the how to approach sort of the lower limb endurance training and, and how that um, influences the, the outcomes of programs. I'm wondering if you can comment on uh, resistance training. So, if we have the situation of not having a lot of access to gym style sort of equipment, which is um, sometimes used in programs, how could upper and lower limb strength training be undertaken? Well, look, strength training can certainly be undertaken as part of a minimal equipment program. If we talk about the lower limb first, this is probably best achieved through using one's own body weight. Uh, some people actually refer to this as body weight resistance exercises. So for the lower limb, we'd be talking about exercises such as squatting and lunging or sit-to-stand exercises or even stepping exercises if a small step was available. Uh, we've talked a bit earlier about um, progression of intensity of training which might concern some people with this style of body resistance exercise. But again, if you had light hand weights available, uh, then th these can always be added to these types of exercises to ensure that an adequate progression of intensity um, can occur. 
Another type of lower limb strength training that could, could be performed again is using the resistance bands we've discussed or TheraBand. Um, you know, again, creatively these can be tied to chairs or poles to allow the lower limbs such as the quads or the hamstring muscles to actually be strengthened. In fact, back in 2014, Ramos and colleagues reported on the use of resistance bands compared to weight machines and they actually showed a similar response of improvements in strength and actually exercise capacity across both of these groups. If we move to talking about the upper limb, the same sort of approach can be used, whether it's through using light hand weights with a strength training protocol or with TheraBands. Again, these can be used for the upper limb. When we talk about how we might prescribe using uh, hand weights, whether it's for the lower limb or the upper limb, typically uh, the literature's talked about a load of between 60 to 80% of a one repetition max, if you've been able to determine that and um, all, all working out a load that perhaps you're able to move through full range between six to ten times. And then when you go on and perform the exercises, typically it's uh, eight to ten repetitions per set for strength training and up to two to three sets for these repetitions. Um, so the same sort of approach could be taken with resistance training in a minimal equipment program. Thanks for that um, insight, Zoe. Um, so again, if we're talking about or thinking about specific outcomes um, related to these approaches, is, is there a different sort of take that needs to be um, considered or um, what sort of does the literature say about the outcomes for the minimal uh, equipment approaches for strength? Well, look, it does need to be a little bit different to, the, um, to what would be a conventional way of measuring strength. Uh, because really we'd be relying on um, looking at more functional type of tests given the types of exercises we're getting people to use. Um, you know, we don't have the fancy weight machines in order to necessarily be able to do one repetition max or have fancy handheld dynamometer machines in order to measure our strength outcomes. So given, say, for the lower limb, um, I've advocated for tasks such as squatting, stepping, and sit-to-stand exercises, we therefore want to be able to do some sort of test that's going to be able to pick up any changes that we could see from training of these tasks. One sit-to-stand test which has been used in the literature as a bit of a surrogate measure of strength and exercise capacity is the five sit-to-stand test. This actually measures how fast you're able to complete five sit-to-stands. Back in 2013, Jones and colleagues from the UK actually showed this five sit to stand test to be a reliable, valid and responsive test with a minimum important difference determined of about 1.7 seconds. And they also showed correlations of this test with lower limb strength measures were actually reasonable. So that might be one way that people can provide some sort of functional test to measure lower limb strength. In terms of upper limb strength assessment, uh, it may be a bit easier to get away with being able to do a repetition max type of test because you may be able to have heavy enough hand weights to be able to do a test like that. A good surrogate might be instead of a one rep max test to do an eight repetition max test where you actually determine the weight that someone's able to move through range with their arms eight times. Some other studies in the literature have also tried to use functional tests for the upper limb to measure um, upper limb strength. Things like just counting the number of times someone's able to lift in a certain direction might be another simple way to look at whether strength outcomes have improved after a minimal equipment program. 
Thanks for that insight, Zoe. Um, so I guess other models of pulmonary rehab uh, which have been uh, applied for, for exercise, uh, including the forms of Tai Chi, and I'm just wondering if you could comment on with whether this may be a, a suitable alternative in the situation of, of minimal resources for pulmonary rehab. Look, I certainly think Tai Chi is a suitable alternative in the, the situation of minimal resources. Um, what we're talking about when we talk about Tai Chi is it's really an ancient Chinese martial art that consists of a series of slow but continuous movements of many parts of the body. So the slow motions often involve shifting body weight with quite a bit of prolonged single leg standing so that you do get some concentric and eccentric contractions happening fairly regularly to the lower limb muscles. And we often talk to patients about feeling like the movements should be imagined as if you're pushing against resistance, similar to what you might be doing if you try to perform movement in water. So given the exercise essentially only involves body movements and therefore it requires no equipment, um, it, it's quite good as a situation of um, a minimal equipment program. However, I would caveat by saying that you definitely require a certain amount of space to do this type of exercise, particularly if you're training within a, a group of people. They certainly need enough space individually to be able to do all of the movements. Uh, another key uh, factor that we've found that's useful to make it more effective is to be able to have mirrors on the walls of the rehab programs so that people can actually see the movements that they're actually doing to make sure that it's actually correct. But I think a really critical component of being able to effectively um, do a Tai Chi program is, is the personnel that are running the program. They certainly need to be trained to, to be taught how to do the Tai Chi themselves and be trained sufficiently that they can be teaching it to the patients. And at times it can be quite staff intensive, only from the perspective that often patients may be in um, different stages of the learning of the movements. Um, and so that can often require quite a bit of staff attention compared to, say, just telling someone to go and cycle on a bike. When you look at the evidence for Tai Chi, when conducted as a short-term exercise program, it's quite strong. As Jenny mentioned earlier, we have done some research looking at the intensity of Tai Chi training, which we actually did on people who had already completed a 12-week Tai Chi program, and we were able to show that it did elicit a moderate training intensity. So uh, that meant that we were fairly confident that we should be able to get a training effect. One thing we did do, though, is subtly change the protocol of the Tai Chi training um, in order to make sure that we were getting a good enough progression of the intensity of training. And we did this by actually adding wrist weights um, to people's wrists while they're actually doing the Tai Chi training. So that's obviously not a typical component of conventional Tai Chi, uh, but certainly um, it did help to ensure that people were still training at moderate levels of symptoms in terms of their dyspnea and their perceived exertion. When you have a look at um, the other evidence about Tai Chi, there was actually a recently published Cochrane review by Shirley Nye and her colleagues in 2016, and they actually identified 12 studies in their review of very low to moderate quality studies, but they concluded that Tai Chi was safe and it, that it improves functional capacity and pulmonary function compared to usual care. Our research teams also conducted one of the moderate quality randomised controlled trials that was included in this review, and we did quite a comprehensive assessment where we also not just, we didn't just look at exercise capacity, but we also looked at quality of life, at balance and at strength out and strength outcomes. And all of these actually showed improvement following Tai Chi compared to a usual medical care group. 
I think one of the great advantages of Tai Chi training over a conventional exercise regime is that other than not needing equipment is that um, you actually get to have an effect on all of the all of these outcomes whether it's you know exercise capacity quality of life balance or strength through just doing this one modality of training whereas typically if you ran a conventional program and you were trying to get changes on all of these you'd be introducing a multitude of exercises from endurance exercises to strength exercises to specific balance exercises. So it's really nice that this one modality of Tai Chi training seems to be impacting on all of these outcomes. One final thing I'll add though is that um, we need to know more about the long-term effects of Tai Chi and whether it's an effective maintenance intervention and there are some studies going on at the moment that are addressing this. Thanks for that uh, comprehensive overview of um, the, the role of Tai Chi and how that's um, maybe a, a good alternative um, for when you have that situation of um, few resources. Um, I'm just wondering if there are any uh, safety concerns related to not having a lot of resources for pulmonary rehab that uh, we as clinicians might need to consider at all. Yeah, thanks Anne-Marie, it's uh, Jenny here. I, I just thought I might try and answer that one because although we're um, talking about minimal equipment for exercise training, I, I think in these sorts of programs we do need to be mindful that we still need equipment for assessment and monitoring of patient safety. And um, in my view that would include you know, a sigma monitor to measure blood pressure, and a pulse oximeter to monitor oxygen saturation and pulse rate, especially during assessment periods and maybe in the first instances of performing some of the exercise training. Um, so, and, and I think the other part of safety really is, um, depending where the programs are, that the people running the program, the clinicians, need to establish emergency procedures that are relevant to their setting. So, um, they need to know what it is that they have if they need to have a mobile phone or a landline where they can ring an emergency number or whatever is appropriate um, for for that for that environment. The other safety side of it um, is really very much around um, the clinician running the program, and I'm a strong believer that uh, low resource programs can be very effective with. Um, skilled clinicians and that clinician should be skilled in exercise um, prescription and managing people with, um, with chronic lung disease and also the ability to be a good enough clinician to manage the comorbidities that often um, occur with our older um, patients, um, the cardiac, musculoskeletal and diabetes comorbidities. So um, minimal resources in terms of equipment but not minimal resources in terms of the expertise of the clinician and, and some of the um, assessment um, monitoring equipment that we might need. Thanks, Jenny. I think they're really important points um, that we need to still consider um, when we're conducting these sorts of programs anyway. Um, I guess the other component that sort of um, fits in the long exercise training is the education um, and we know that that's, a, that's an important part. Um, how could clinicians provide education when there is a, a minimal equipment program and is it something that um, may vary compared to the traditional model or, or not? Yeah, look, I think that's a really good question and I think probably generally we don't really know what is the best way to educate um, our patients anyway. Um, there have been a number of recent randomised controlled trials um, that have um, one by Felicity Blackstock uh, that have looked at 
whether the multidisciplinary didactic style of education made any difference to a group that had pulmonary rehab with that style of education as opposed to pulmonary rehab without education. And um, in a large group of patients um, in this randomised control trial, they're unable to show any significant differences in in outcomes of the pulmonary rehabilitation program or in health utilisation. So I think um, the jury's still out on the best way to deliver uh, education anyway. Um, there are currently um, web-based resources that provide credible educational information for people with um, lung disease and most of these resources are uh, available on the websites of the lung foundations in different countries um, and have been carefully monitored to ensure that the information is is credible and um, I think that uh, going back to my my um, discussion on having an experienced clinician if you do have an experienced clinician um, that can talk individually with patients about the things that they need to understand at that particular time or are ready to hear at that particular time, maybe that's a, a low resource way of providing education. Um, education about disease is one thing, but also there's, there's, a, there's the um, education in, around self-management. And again, that doesn't require extensive resources, but it probably requires a clinician who um, is experienced in um, teaching or helping patients develop self-management skills to manage their disease. So again, I think um, it, it, certainly if you didn't have a particular ability to provide extensive education in a low-resourced, low-minimal-equipment program, it wouldn't be a reason not to deliver that program because I don't think we really know yet what are the best ways to do that. Thanks. No, I think they're, they're important points, especially around, um, you know, yes, as you say, the current knowledge um, for education right now. Um, I guess one of our final points is um, we know that such a critical outcome for pulmonary rehab is functional exercise capacity. And we also know with some of our field walking tests that this does require a certain amount of space and I guess a degree of control over the environment. I'm wondering if there are other options for, for gaining an assessment of exercise tolerance that might be uh, requiring less space and perhaps use minimal equipment um, and still would be considered responsive um, based on the, the information that we have at the moment. Yes, look, uh, there certainly are other simple functional tests that can be used that require little space and equipment. I suppose my first thoughts are that Jenny mentioned um, at the start of the podcast that um, how well we know the information around prescribing from things like the six-minute walk test and the incremental shuttle walk test. And we know that for something like the six-minute walk test that the American Thoracic Society standards um, tell us that we need a track that's at least 30 metres as an up-down track. I suppose as a, uh, if you're sort of trapped for space a little bit one further way to try and achieve a 30-metre track would be to use a circular track. So that might be one possible option that would still allow you to conduct the more conventional type of field tests that many of us do. However, if you still um, have demands on space and equipment, there are about three or four other types of tests that you can do. There's step tests, there's sit-to-stand tests, and there's gate speed tests. So if I start off just talking 
for a little bit about step tests. When these were first brought into this, the area of uh, people with COPD, they tended to be constant work rate step tests. There was one that was known as the six-minute stepper test. More recently, however, there's been an interest in examining the worth of step tests where the stepping rate can actually increase over time so that it's a more incremental test to peak work capacity. One of these tests is called the incremental step test. It was actually adapted from the Chester step test, which was actually found to be a little bit too difficult for people with COPD. So what tends to happen in the incremental step test is that the stepping rate starts at 10 steps per minute on a 20 centimetre wooden step in height. And it, the stepping rate then increases by one step every 30 seconds until it can no longer be tolerated. And this particular test has been examined previously and has been shown to be a re reproducible test with um, uh, maximum responses. But probably more research needs to be done to see how these tests actually respond to rehab. There's been a recent interest in um, a number of sit-to-stand tests. And as um, you'll recall earlier when we were talking about strength assessments, I talked a little bit about the five sit-to-stand tests. There are other types of sit-to-stand tests. Ones that sort of look at the number of sit-to-stands you can perform in a fixed time frame, whether that be 30 seconds or one minute. There was actually a recent paper published in the European Respiratory Journal by Cook and colleagues looking at the one-minute sit-to-stand test and they did a very comprehensive study where they showed it to be reliable, to be valid and to be responsive with an MID determined to be about three sit-to-stand manoeuvres. And they showed that sit-to-stand test to actually have quite a strong relationship to six-minute walk distance. One problem with the sit-to-stand tests might be that if patients are obviously struggling to perform up to five sit-to-stand manoeuvres, then they're likely to be people that you probably need to exclude from this type of test. So a sit-to-stand test may turn out to be a better test to use in higher functioning patients. Um, another type of um, functional test that one can perform which might actually suit lower functioning patients is to look at gait speed tests. A common one is the four metre gait speed test. It only requires an eight metre track in order to perform it. The nice thing about this measure, which is really stemmed from the geriatric literature, is that it, um, the, the measure of the four metre gait speed test can be combined with other measures to actually give us an indication of the level of frailty that someone has. And Matthew Maddox group in the UK have been doing some great research examining frailty levels in people um, referred to pulmonary rehab programs and their research showed that about one in four people with COPD suffers from frailty and that a pulmonary rehab program was able to actually improve frailty levels and some of that improvement was because of an improvement in the four metre gait speed test. So I think this is looking like it might be a test that becomes a little bit more popular in the future if people are beginning to see more frail patients in their programs. And finally, um, one combination of both sit-to-stand and gait speed is to perform the timed up-and-go test. Uh, in this test, subjects are requested to stand up from a chair, walk a distance of about three metres at a comfortable and safe pace, and then turn and walk back to the chair to sit down again. Um, again, there's some work going on in Europe uh, by Martin Spruitt's group in the Netherlands uh, around this test, and they've shown it to be valid and responsive to pulmonary rehab. So look, there certainly are a number of other options that people can choose to try and assess functional capacity if space is very much an issue. 
that's great to know. And I think um, with, it's a good point to sort of finish on, but also um, knowing that there's some emerging literature around um, home-based sort of rehabilitation and, you know, if outcomes um, such as those that you've just mentioned um, can perhaps be used in those sorts of environments, um, that's also encouraging from a, a clinical perspective as well. Thank you very much, um, both uh, Jenny and Zoe, for, for joining uh, me today and giving us uh, your expertise and insights into um, minimal equipment for pulmonary rehabilitation. We greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Anne-Marie.